This is the London FinTech Podcast, brought to you by your host, Mike Ballaman, bridging the worlds of suits and t-shirts, of finance and technology, bringing you insights, stories, and inspiration from the golden age of opportunity and innovation happening in London right now. Hi, this is Mike Ballaman, and this is London FinTech Podcast, episode 188 brought to you in association with Smart Pension and TheEnlistedBoard.com. And I'm delighted to be joined today by Nick Brisbane, CEO at Early Stage VC's Forward Partners, to talk about the all-important topic of how to IPO. Every startup in the tech world is after a realisation, or put it in other terms, a point in time at which someone puts a real as opposed to notional valuation on your firm, when you sell out in whole via a trade sale or in part via an IPO. But like many things, how hard can it be is answered by harder than you might ever imagine. We've touched on in passing on IPOs a few times before, but never dedicated an episode to IPOing previously. And as it's super important, it's an omission that we're about to rectify. Oh yes, and just in passing, for all of you that don't know everything about everything out there, you may have missed the fact that Nick and Forward Partners themselves did a successful IPO just a couple of months ago. So who better to discuss this with. Plenty to talk about, so let's get on with the show. Good morning, Nick. Thank you for joining me on the show today. Good morning. A big fan of what you're doing with the London FinTech podcast, so very pleased to be here. Oh, thank you very much. I was less of a fan myself when I uh, turned my computer on today because I've had three weeks off. And uh, clearly the, the, the manic pre-holiday mic thought that the best thing to do was sort of 10 a.m. in the morning of the, the first day back, jump into the deep end straight into podcast recording. <laughs> the post-holiday mic, who's sort of uh, rather sort of uh, more, more languid about time and has lost the pot, was busy trying to remember how I connect all my devices together. <laughs> <laughs> so my, my realisation was last night when uh, I've coincided this uh, podcast with the same day as our first post-IPO PLC board meeting. So uh, I'll give myself a rush as well. <laughs> ah, excellent. Excellent. Yes. Well, there, there we go. At least we get things done and sort of uh, be a bit more relaxed by Friday. Now, in, in terms of you've been a very busy boy, which we shall come on to you and your friends have been very, very busy. But um, in terms of sort of chit chatty stuff, you mentioned a couple of words at random, which I couldn't help joining in the same sentence, which is that uh, when you're not IPOing, which probably means sort of about a year or so ago when you had spare time, you do things One's which is called meditation and the other which is called watching Chelsea. Now, did you take up watching Chelsea first, I assume? And then the stress from that led to such <laughs> such torment in your soul. You thought, my God, the only way to cope with watching Chelsea year in, year out is I've got to take up some serious meditation. Or was it the other way around? Or was it, you, you know, you were sort of turning so angelic and calm. You thought, this is, this is not real. I, I've got to go and watch Chelsea. Which came first, the chicken or the egg? Uh, Chelsea definitely came first. I've had a season ticket <laughs> since the late 90s. Excellent, um, excellent. But I'm going to say it's, uh, it's not Chelsea that, uh, that led me to take up meditation. I mean, like in part, it's just a kind of quest to understand myself better, to be better. That's just always been there. But it's, uh, it's super powerful. Meditation is an amazingly powerful tool for managing work stress, um, amongst many other things. And uh, a lot of people say it's a tool that every entrepreneur should have in their in their toolbox. But they're both a release in different ways. Yes, yes, it's important to do something 
kind of completely different. I mean, the way I always think about it is, I don't know, you've got a car or something or a computer, and one of the components is overheating, you know, because if you're just running it all the time and you need to sort of kind of use the other bits, you know, the other bits of the, the psyche. Otherwise, you just sort of burn yourself out of uh, creativity and freshness and you sort of keep your head down and just keep stumbling on and that. Now, I, I remember talking of meditation and business. It's quite some time since I did a, my last 10-day meditation retreat. Oh, I don't know, maybe 15 years or something. I'm much more lazy these days. And I got back to the office and uh, somebody said, so, so what's meditation like? And I said, well, what would you think if I said to you, what's sport like? Well, he said, that's a silly question because there are lots of different sports and, you know, horse riding is very different from swimming. And so I said, well, in the same way, meditation is, is a generic term of, um, you know, doing things with your mind for the sake of argument, in the same way that sport is a generic term for doing something with your body. So when you say meditation, which kind of meditation do you do? So I had an interest in meditation and, and actually got, so before I founded Forward Partners, I suddenly found, unexpectedly found myself with a month off. And my wife said, uh, you should do something interesting. And I said, I'm going to go to India and meditate. Uh, and so I, so I, I relatively short notice actually took myself off to an ashram in, in Rishikesh in the foothills uh, of the Himalayas and, and learned to meditate there properly in the, in the Himalayan tradition. Just, and so they, they fuse actually a lot of different traditions there. But what I do now is, is sit cross-legged on the floor for 30-40 minutes every morning and and focus on my breath and do a kind of mix of relaxation but I have a lot of my best work ideas pop into my head while I'm meditating as well. Yes so is it kind of Tibetan tradition or Hindu? Tibetan yeah. Yes I thought these sort of uh, the Tibetans have flowed sort of slightly south well I could do a whole series of podcasts uh, on this and there probably are podcasts out there but I mean the Tibetan tradition narrows it down a bit but even within Tibetan tradition, there's a vast range uh, of things from sort of, say, the Gulagpa at one end, the sort of the Dalai Lama's uh, very intellectual sort of end, um, but also the sort of the other end, the Enigma and the Dzogchen, which uh, I know a little bit about as well. But I think that, uh, you know, going back to the breath and, and all that kind of stuff, in terms of just from a perspective of work, I think the most useful thing, and, and you can get this in different ways, is just calming the soul, shall we say, I'm using that word poetically, just to just to calm down, get a little bit slower, let everything um, settle. And uh, I certainly remember my first meditation retreat. And you sit there and you realise what the monkey mind actually means. You think, oh my God, I'm having billions of thoughts. Of course, the meditation is driving me mad. Well, it, it actually was probably. <laughs> but also, until one actually sort of self-reflects, one doesn't realise that, you know, that your flywheels are running at about sort of 240 beats per minute. Completely. There are many facets to it, and as you said right at the beginning of this, it's hard to, to pin meditation down to one thing. But that calming sense, the there's a Viktor Frankl quote. Uh, Viktor Frankl, for those that he was a Holocaust survivor, philosopher who is into meditation a lot, and he talks about the pause, the moment between stimulus and reaction. One of the things meditation really does is, is allow you to kind of take control of that pause, not have those kind of snap reactions, which often result in you saying things maybe that, that you wouldn't if you'd taken a couple of seconds. So that, that's it, very powerful at work. Indeed, and um, I think it may well be. Um, we'll come on to your career next, but uh, 
over the decades, especially with this sort of digital age and this overload, I mean, one of my big weaknesses is watching far too many YouTubes at sort of times two or times one and a half. With too much information overload now compared to when I started my career, when, you know, you'd read the FT in the morning and maybe a couple of brokers reports during the day and that would be it, that these things have become ever more important. So talking about career journeys and we'll come on to the, the now bit next, but uh, starting with the then bit, what was the then bit when one day you decided or your parents kicked you out and said, go and get a job and <laughs> pay for your own groceries and, and gas bill? What did you do then? Ooh, so, so I graduated in, in 1995 with a degree in political science and without a strong idea at all of what I should do career-wise. And so I fell into management consultancy, which at that point was one of the it was one of the higher paid options out of university and, and opened up options rather than closing them down. So I did that for a couple of years uh, and then that took us to the late 90s when the startup boom was really starting to happen in, in London. So I joined a startup a company called Operus Group which was a great company, is a great company. It's maybe twice the size um, now as it, as it was back then. So I had a, a really good time there. But after a couple of years, it became clear that, you know, it wasn't going to hit massive scale. So then I thought, well, where do I go next? And I thought, like, the consulting experience, uh, how do I use that? How do I use the startup experience? And how do I avoid this situation again of having to put all my eggs in one basket, judging which company is going to be successful? And I don't really have maybe all the tools for that yet. And so that led me to venture. I thought, well, you know, when you're investing in companies, choosing which companies to invest in, that's analyzing companies in the way that I had done as a strategy consultant. And two, influencing those companies post-investment from the board is kind of similar to how we used to had to influence our clients as strategy consultants. We used to call it managing without authority. And so that was it. And for a year, I networked around trying to get a venture job in, in London and, and secured one late 99 with Reuters Venture Capital, so investing off of Reuters balance sheet, uh, and caught the, the tail end of the bubble there. And we had some remarkable success. Invested in the B, this was before I joined, but invested in the B round of Yahoo. And we were doing corporate venturing, so there was a strategic deal there too. So Reuters News powered Yahoo Finance. And so that was... That was kind of the first advertising content deal done on the web. And so we had a lot of fun, had an awful lot of success there for a few years. And then when did your journey with Forward start? So I left Reuters Venture Capital and joined what became Draper Esprit. And that was where I first made partner as a venture investor. And then fast forward to 2013. And there, are, uh, there was a real emerging opportunity to build a pre-seed and seed stage manager with a high value add model. Two things that were happening clearly in the US hadn't happened here yet. We didn't want to do that at Draper, so I said, okay, I'm going to do this myself. And that led to founding Forward back in 2013. And how many of you founded Forward? So in a way, it was just me, but in a way, it's not a traditional founding story. And, and I actually feel... Um, and I've got over it in recent years, but certainly early on, I, I didn't like calling myself a founder. And the reason was that the way it, it happened was that I was speaking to a chap called Neil Hutchinson, who himself was an entrepreneur. He had founded a company called Forward Internet Group. And he said, look, I love the idea of what you're doing, Nick. I'd like to invest 15 million pounds to support you, but I need you to come work for me at my company. And so you become a division of Ford Internet Group. I said, okay, we can do that. And, and he said, the reason is I've got um, some balance sheet investments we've been making that need organizing. And I have uh, an incubator, it was called Ford Labs, that needs needs 
some management. And so, you know, the quid pro quo for the 15 million was, Nick, you join uh, and, and organize those things for me. I said, look, I can do all that, Neil, but we will need to spin out because ultimately I'm going to need to raise a lot more money than Ford Internet Group is ever going to be able to provide. And he said, he agreed to that eventually. That we, so those are the terms we agreed on. So I joined Ford Internet Group as an employee and immediately had a team of about 40, actually, and across those two things. And then we spun out a year later. I see. That was always interesting to hear that there are more complex founding stories than sort of one man and a dog sit in a pub and have a good idea and the next day they start a company and go around and look for a web address and uh, a name of a company that hasn't already been taken at a company's house. And there is a whole dimension, of course, about the early stage uh, stuff. We covered this uh, relatively recently on the podcast um, for those who may missed it in LFP 182 with Yusuf at uh, QED in Investors and the, the kind of techniques that used to be need to be used on very early stage are uh, a little bit different from sort of investing halfway through the journey. So let's put that to one side and let's just fast forward. So less than a decade ago, you were doing this kind of, oh, I think there's a, a gap in the market. and I think something involving the word forward will be a good idea. And it clearly has been a good idea, not just those smaller elements, but actually no out the execution and intervening sort of roughly a decade. So before we look at why you guys decided to um, IPO, as you say, your your venture people, uh, you understand realisation because you understand extremely well that you only get money back when <laughs> someone who quotes writes a check out for it. Before that, it's all notional and accounting and, uh, and, and maybes. So just in general, successful startups, for one reason or another, need liquidity events uh, or realisations or whatever. So in general, how would you see the successful startup, let's just say after 10 years, what drives the decision as to whether to do a trade sale, for example, Currency Cloud, who on the podcast recently sold themselves to Visa for a billion bucks or uh, or something recently, and you guys have uh, IPO'd. What kind of criteria lead companies in general to decide, oh, we will trade sale or we will IPO, or is it kind of happenstance? Someone comes along and says, hey, Nick, I'll give you a billion dollars for your company. Oh, really? Oh, okay, then, fair enough. After a little bit of conversation, of course, it's not that simple, but you know, schematically. Is it a combination of what actually happens like organically outside someone knocks on your door with an offer you literally can't refuse or or is it the question that sort of actually the nature of the business means you're going to have to end up going in one direction or the other so there there, there is an element of happenstance definitely but i think the biggest driver is definitely the nature of the business so some companies clearly have the potential to be uh, independent large independent successful companies and that means ultimately generating significant profits uh, with significant growth in those profits. Other companies, that future isn't available to them. Uh, and it becomes clear at some point that the future of the product, the team, is best served by being part of a larger organization who can uh, apply their much larger resources to it. And so uh, the kind of quintessential case for for software companies is you've got a software product someone like microsoft turns up that they've been one of the biggest ones recently oracle has been massive for a lot of my career doing much less these days salesforce now uh, and they say oh, so if we add your product to our suite then we can do our scale brings us two things that uh, you'd, be, you'd find challenging on your own firstly our existing customers we're going okay cool this additional product that we now have in the suite makes a lot of sense and so you get cross-sell opportunities to existing customers so you can leverage the customer base and secondly you can leverage the scale of the of the sales team and so they often look at it and go well this thing can just grow much faster as part of microsoft or salesforce or whoever 
Yes, I can see that. And I was going to say being cynical, but actually I don't think it's cynical, but just being sort of old. I've heard over the you know the last 20 years, I guess, when this kind of thing has happened in FS, I've heard a lot of trade sales and the propaganda is always the same. We're delighted to join this company. They're absolutely wonderful. It's a synergy. It's a match made in heaven, etc., etc. And I can't think of many examples where after two or three years, the actual sort of founders and all that kind of thing haven't in general, almost majority, moved away simply because, you know, it's sort of it's chalk and cheese. It's sort of oil and water you know you, you've got your startup culture you've created your product as a particular vibe and then you join for the sake of arguing microsoft and it's a whole new ball game and, and once the sort of handcuffs come off and, and, and all that kind of thing so that is certainly at a minimum a, a risk with doing the trades sale although on the other hand it often can be an opportunity and that the founders then go back to hey what i really like doing was having a small startup and creating something out of nothing rather than working in a company of a million people worldwide with 5000 reporting lines and all this kind of stuff the ipo offers a different direction and obviously that's one that you guys have taken which is that quotes unquote your business continues <laughs> now as we will talk about there will be various changes i think you know if when we were speaking a few months ago you were a managing partner and now you're a a CEO and your stakeholders, shareholders, or whatever have changed. And uh, there's a, a, as you will have found to your entertainment, uh, there are a million rules that apply to boards of listed companies that don't apply to unlisted, etc., etc. So there's quite a complex world, but there is more of a continuation, although a, a significant phase change. Now, before we get to that significant phase change, I think the one thing for people who don't know about IPOs that they underestimate is that, as I say, in terms of how hard can it be. Well, actually, a hell of a lot of hard work is what I've always heard from everybody. So in your particular case, Nick, just speaking for you, I mean, how long have you been on this case? Six months, one year, 18 months? And how all time consuming was it? Did you do a thousand presentations a week, you know, and all this kind of stuff? Or was it sort of you did it in the afternoons because the mornings you did other stuff? Uh, so we first started thinking about it seriously, talking with our investors seriously about IPO in back in 2018. So it's a three year journey. Back in 2018, so we spoke to a bunch of brokers, tested the market. We were definitely too early then. But it was actually, you know, when we came back to talk about it again properly, which was last year, 2020, you know, having had conversations two years prior was very helpful. You know, they knew us, they did, they were able to chart the, the progress. We have this cliche in the venture capital world, which is it's much better to invest in lines, not dots. So if you've seen someone uh, at some point in the past and then you see them again, you can connect a line. It's much easier than when you can connect a dot and you don't know the trajectory at that point. So it's well worth getting in touch with brokers before you think you're ready or wait, you know, as early as you think you might be, maybe. Uh, so we had some conversations in 2018, put things on ice. We had them again uh, late 2019, COVID broke. And so then we put them on ice again until summer of last year. And, and then when we that's when we started rekindling things, had some proper conversations with our investors, got outline agreement on how it would look. Uh, and then we did a broker roadshow in October last year. I met half a dozen brokers, chose the one we wanted to work with, Libram, who have been fantastic for us. And then we embarked on, on the real hard work. So prior to that, it had mostly been me and it was a, you know, it was a portion of my time, definitely. And I was calling on other people in the team, but, you know, like it, it wasn't huge. There was some spikes, but it wasn't huge. Then once we got into, once we selected Libram, 
Then we got into uh, meeting investors for the first time. And that means that you've got to get your IPO deck sorted out. And, and one of the shifts actually in, that I underestimated was the difference between raising money as a fund and raising money as a company. So raising money from fund investors, they're very clear on what they want. Uh, let's give, give me these pieces of information. I'd like a slide on your strategy, please. I don't really care about your management company that much, but the slide on the strategy comes towards the end. That totally flips like we were selling a company, right? That, you know, and so it actually took us quite a long time to reorient our fundraising materials in order to be right for that audience. So that was a, that was a big chunk of work. And at that point, I started involving much more of the team. And then we did what is very standard in an IPO process. So we appointed brokers. We then did a test marketing, uh, met with about, what do we mean, 10, I think, investors to see if we got enough positive feedback from them to say, okay, yes, this thing definitely looks like it's going to fly. And that's when we then engaged with our accountants, lawyers, started spending real money, putting real time in to actually get an IPO done. And so we made that decision to push the go button in February this year. Then we started working with uh, so Grant Thornton and Gowling, where our two main advisors. And at that point, then I had an IPO team, you know, moved to kind of 70, 80% of my time and probably half the time for two or three other people. And our FD was probably 70, 80% of his time on the IPO. You know, we met twice a week as internally at Forward as an IPO team and, and then with our advisors. So, you know, at that point, it became pretty all-consuming for the company. Uh, and it stayed that way until we got listed in July. And uh, without diving into to, to your numbers, which actually may be publicly disclosed now or not, it doesn't really matter. But as a rule of thumb, this process doesn't sound at all cheap. So the sort of checks you have to write out and, and send to people for their uh, time and expertise. And also there's the internal costs. Is there any kind of rule of thumb about what percentage of funds raised or what absolute sums of money uh, an IPO costs? So, you know, if some, somebody's listening to this thinking, oh, I wonder how much an IPO costs. Does it cost 1 million, 10 million? Does it cost 1% of funds raised or five? I mean, well, we'll get onto funds raised because that varies enormously. That, that's probably a sort of uh, a, a rabbit all in itself so there are two parts to it there are costs that you incur whether or not the IPO succeeds so having pressed go in February then we had we were then going to be on the hook for, for legal costs and costs with Grant Thornton whether or not the IPO succeeded and you can you know and you can push some of those into success fees but not that much and then there is the much bigger component of the ultimate IPO cost which are the contingent fees which go very largely to uh, to your broker uh, and a big chunk of that is a percentage of the funds that you raise but there are other elements in there as well so the the thing that I was most focused on in February you know like the so we've, we've had some positive feedback it looks like this thing is going to succeed but there is no guarantee at this point you know like the markets could crash the IPO window could close so I was very concerned to make sure that the costs in the event that we had to abort the IPO was something that we could live with. I think that's a really important focus for anybody. Uh, you know, even though we thought it was 90% likely to get out, get out, you know, you just can't be taking a 10% chance of things really going well, particularly as a regulated business. So we were very focused on that. And that number was around about half a million. 
and that is the the bulk of so that's all of your accounting costs accounting due diligence and the bulk of the legal costs and the overall costs were in the order of a few million let's say and we're actually going to disclose the number in a couple of weeks but i don't think i should say more at this point anyway it's low seven figures even for and i didn't mean to be rude a, a relatively modest uh, ipo you know this isn't a sort of gazprom going for billions where the, the costs are even more so you know your entry level ipo you're talking you're talking seven figures now one of the things we sort of skated over um, and it's a huge thing in itself so just for the listener who may not understand uh, this as I was saying if you sell your company in a trade sale somebody simplistically just buys it you know they buy London fintech podcast uh, as it were off me and they give me a check and I now work for them putting it simply the IPO isn't like that in that you've got a company with a number of shares let's just keep it very simple you've got a hundred shares in, in your company you don't go to the stock market and say does anybody want to buy a hundred shares you know so you might flute some of those shares you might raise some new money and all sorts of complicated things like that. So I've explained that in a completely messy way. How would a professional explain that so that the listeners understand it a bit more straightforwardly? You know, you've got a company, it's got X shares. What happens when you IPO and how do you decide what Y is and how do you decide what Z is? So in our case, the rough numbers were company had 100 million shares before we IPO'd. And when you IPO, you issue new shares uh, and, and all the IPO proceeds go towards buying new shares. So our offer price was was a pound. We raised 36.5 million pounds in the end. So we created 36.5 million shares. And so we now have 136.5 million shares. And that is the same logic for those who are familiar with the venture capital world. That's, that's the same underlying logic as when you raise a seed round or a series A. You've got 100 shares and your series A investor buys 10 shares for 10 million quid, say, and suddenly you have 110 shares. I think what I was thinking about was that generally, especially in sort of founder-driven businesses, on the IPO, the existing shareholders, for example, the founders, let's say there's three founders, they will sell some of their shares because, you know, they or certainly their wives or or partners will want to actually have a little bit of cash coming in as a compensation for not having seen their spouse for the last 10 years at all. Um, So some of the old shares will also be sold to the, the stock market. So for the sake of argument, you had 100 million shares. For the sake of argument, you guys sold 10 million and actually you issued 36 million more or or, or whatever. So that's, that's, that was what I was kind of thinking about. Yes, you're right. So our, our IPO is atypical in that sense. So nobody took any money out. So we went from 100 million shares to 136.5. But in your example, so if any of our investors or employees had taken out, say, 10 million um, shares, which would have been 10 million pounds worth, and we raised 36.5 million, well, then the total number of shares would have been 126.5 million, and the new investors would have 36.5 million shares, and you got 10 million from existing investors, and, and 26.5 would have been newly created shares. Right. Now, you mentioned advisors. Advisors are very good, and you can't really do it very easily without them, but uh, there is a challenge. Now, it's rather less of a challenge, I would have thought, for you than many other companies, because you're a professional on this whole sort of lark of <laughs> flogging companies to the stock market and trade sales and getting money back and all this kind of stuff. So you're, you're a sophisticated CEO IPOing, but there are many people in businesses, possibly outside fintech, who aren't sophisticated about the ways of the financial advisors and all this kind of stuff. And I think that the challenge with advisors is always is that the word is advisors. Now, if you hire an advisor and you never take any of their advice, you know, why are you hiring a dog and then barking yourself? Equally, they are advisors. They're not the principals. You're the principal. You're the person, who, um, you're the team, the, the, the people who know 
what you want to be doing. So what would you say about this sort of balance of listening to what your advisors say, because it's, they, they do this every day of their life, well, hopefully. So they, they know a hell of a lot about IPOing, but equally, you know a hell of a lot about your company and what you guys want to do and strategy and vision, all this kind of stuff. So there's like a, a Venn diagram. So what advice would you give other founders who are looking at, at, at IPOing in terms of advisor management and, and this nuanced balance between listening to their advice and taking it sometimes, but perhaps not always? Quite a few thoughts in there. Uh, so firstly, the devil is really in the detail of, of all of this. So, you know, we've been, I've been uh, involved with companies that have IPO'd before, but what the, the, you know, the, the, what you see at the board level of that is just a very thin slice across the top and, and actually all the difficult decisions as to whether you take the advice of your advisors or not, when you push back, that kind of really lives in a, in a level of detail. And so we were learning it, I was learning it all for the, a lot of it for the first time. That's first thought. Uh, secondly, one of the things which was a massive help to, to forward and to me personally was uh, we found an advisor, a guy called Chris Smith, who's now on our board, who uh, he had previously been a banker at UBS. He'd done 120 IPOs. And so he knew his way around all this. He'd seen it a lot. And so when I was thinking, crikey, Grant Thornton is saying this, Gowling is saying that, Libram is saying this, is that right? Is it normal? Then being able to use him as a sounding board was, was super helpful. And then the third thing is that Whilst they are our advisors and we are paying them, we are not their only customer. And so the way it works is that, so we're listed on, on AIM, which is the junior stock market to the London Stock Exchange. And when you are listed on, on a stock exchange, you need to be regulated. When you're listed on AIM, you're regulated by your broker. So as well as being our broker, Libram is our, it's called a nomad nominated advisor. But that means that they are our regulators. So that means they need to sign off on all of our offering materials. And for them to sign off, they need, uh, in our case, Grant Thornton and Gowling to sign off. So in many ways, actually, Libram is as much of a customer for, uh, for all this work that's getting done as we are. And so, you know, when Grant Thornton are advising something, and I, think, I feel that that's over the top, then I can push back to Grant Thornton. And then the next conversation is with Libram. Like Grant Thornton is saying, Grant Thornton is saying you need this do you then then we can like well do you really and so it's 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 a complicated area but you know the consistent thread was i was pushing for simplicity pushing for materials that gave clear messages to investors were simple to understand more efficient to produce and and the thrust from advisors is uh, is often to not be thinking about simplicity but be thinking about minimizing risk so I might want a simple, clear statement, and they say, well, I can see that's true 95% of the time, but 5% of the time it's not, so I want to layer in a load of caveats to your messaging, please. And then the caveats ruin the flow and make it less effective as a sales document, and so that, that's, you know, where you end up in that compromise is, is the most common debate. Yes, having been involved a little bit with the risk in the, in the past, one of the worst things that's happened is the sort of whole risk mania of the entire world which we've seen on the sort of macro level in the last 18 months but uh, 
you know, whether it's report and accounts or IPO documents, you know, the list of risk, risk factors is now five million long, which is entirely useless because, you know, a meteorite might strike and this might, you know, you get the sort of the crazy, crazy, crazy list rather than actually look, the, the key five risks are this, this, this and this. So uh, that's a, a little bit bad. But I, I really like the, the, the point that you're making. Um, and certainly my involvement from IPOs has been at the sort of the high level, although from the banking end, end of it, which at a high level, it's actually very simple. You know, there's a question of what is the price? How many shares they're flogging? <laughs> Do the investors want it? But actually the um, the details and the mechanics down uh, are very significant. Well, anyway, we're just trying to give people uh, a feel for the domain and sketching it out. And, and so far, we've got the idea that actually having conversations for a few years ahead of it is really valuable all around. So you get to understand the whole process and the dynamics and, and what are important to these uh, advisory people. And they get to know you. And as you say, they, they join the dots to get lines and understand the company much more. The basic thing is you flog some new shares and maybe you sell some existing shares. That's fairly straightforward. The broker and all that will tell you what kind of price it, it might make sense to do it at. So that's so straightforward. But you're pointing that there's a whole host of details below. And I liked your answer to, you know, how do you manage all these different advisors advising you in slightly different directions? Well, that's kind of the pre-IPO board thing, really, which is if you've got a, a Ned on your pre-IPO board who's seen it a million times, that's great. Or a chairman. Uh, or if you haven't, find a, an advisor who can help you manage all that. Now, so the whole thing is uh, very complex, but if we can just sort of wrap up with one key thing. So from a simple perspective, the naive person uh, who's still on the sort of a ladybird books uh, of finance rather than having got any further in their career, they might say, oh, you were a company yesterday and you're a company today and you had shareholders then and you have shareholders now. What changes? So maybe we can answer the what changes at two levels, the management board level. What changes for you as a CEO now and a managing partner in the past? Um, and then also for the staff, if I'm a dev, well, I don't know, you would have devs at, at VCs, I don't know, but anyway. We have I devs. Wanna, wanna, <laughs> okay, you have devs, good. Everybody does these days. So I'm a dev at forward, you know, what do I care? You know, yeah, it's an LLP or it's a limited or it's a PLC or it's, you know. So maybe we start with um, uh, the management carder first because your life has probably changed more than most. Because the average dev is probably deving today as he dev a few months ago. Uh, you're not wrong. So from my perspective, as, as, as you know, so I moved from managing partner of a fund to CEO of a PLC. And so when you're managing partner of a fund, you have a management company which has a contract to manage the funds that, that we invest. And myself and part the, our partners own the management company. So that's a very secure position for our investors to take any action against us. If they don't like what we're doing, they have to show they were in breach of contract, which is you know, and the hurdle for that is quite high. So you're very secure, you're very much in control of your own destiny. And the big thing that you lose moving to a company is now uh, I'm an employee, I'm a tiny shareholder in the business, and, and I'm now beholden to, to the Ford Partners Board. And so we have, we have given up control. That is, the, that is the big thing that we have given up as, uh, as employees now of a Ford Partners Group PLC. We embraced that. Like uh, I was very willing to do that because of what we get in return. And so what we get in return, and this goes to your question of why should the devs care? What we get is most obviously we get a chunk of cash so we can continue to build our business, to invest both in, so we're a venture capital fund and we also got a, a debt unit called Ford Advances to continue to grow both of those. You know, that's really important for the team. Like what we're all signed up for at Ford, our mission statement is to be the UK's leading and most admired early stage venture firm. And this really helps us grow. We've raised cash, we're now also permanent capital, which means that 
when we exit companies and we announced a couple post the IPO already, you know, the five million from those two exits we announced is come back and sits on our balance sheet, we can reinvest it. Whereas under the old fund model, when we get those exits, the money goes back to investors and we need to go and raise a new fund every two or three years. And vice versa for, for the investee companies, your investment time horizon is no longer driven by a fund that needs realizations. It can be driven much more by their business cycle because you're in no hurry to, to recycle the money if there's a, an investment case for leaving it there longer. Yeah, yeah, we love that too, right? So now our exits will solely be when is best for the company or the portfolio company rather than driven by our fund cycle. So that's a good benefit as well. So all of that's important, but it was the second reason for us to be IPOing. The first reason was that as a company, we can have the strategic flexibility to do what we want to do, which is help as many entrepreneurs as possible to succeed. So venture capital has been brilliant for the thin slice of the entrepreneur market who want to build unicorns. Uh, and then that part of the market is, is great. We play in it. It's very efficient. But for the vast swathes of other entrepreneurs who are maybe sitting on ultimate exits, which are maybe a few hundred million, right? Still great companies, but not a billion or who don't want to go out of control or who don't want necessarily to think they need to grow two, three X a year for five years. All of those really important entrepreneurs, important companies generating jobs, generating growth and innovation for this country. You know, all of that community is less well served by the venture capital industry. That's why we launched our debt business, revenue-based finance actually technically last year. And so as a company, we have the flexibility to do more of that. And then having the, those flexibilities in a fund structure is really difficult. And we were able to launch advances last year because we only have one LP in our, in our second fund, which is BlackRock. And so we were able to have a conversation with them and we did it with a hack, really. And so we launched Ford Advances as a portfolio company of funds too. But what we're able to do, what we have done in the IPO is take Ford Advances out of fund two and merge it with the ventures business and our studio team. We haven't taken the opportunity to uh, to tell your listeners, Mike, what uh, what we actually do at, at Ford Partners. <laughs> right. So we will tell them in a minute. Yes, I like that. And, and I really like the fact that we're wrapping up on the fact that in your case, and this may be, of course, because you spent nine months marketing and, and, and found a nice way of explaining it. But uh, genuinely, it seems to me that uh, this was driven in your case by a desire to realise your underlying vision about being a premier startup VC, because very often it is, of course, driven by the desire to get cash. You know, some VC with a fund wants his cash back. Look, you know, I invested in the podcast, Mike, 10 years ago. Look, I really need some money now. You know, you guys have got to got to realise yourselves, whereas in, in your case, it's much more uh, organic about your mission. So before we wrap up the show and hear a little bit more about Fault Forward, I'd like to thank all your listeners out there, my brand partners for the podcast. Smart is transforming pensions and retirement worldwide. The leading edge retirement tech platform propelled them to success in the UK. Now they're operating on four continents and working with partners like Zurich and JP Morgan. Find out more at www.smart.co. The listedboard.com resources to help you start making your board an engine of growth today. So we've mentioned Ford a little bit, Nick, um, in terms of wrapping up for the dessert course, for listeners out there who aren't fully familiar with Ford and putting to, to one side um, all, all this IPOing uh, stuff, what should they need to know uh, about you guys and where are you going in the future and what will make you even bigger and better than you are today? Great questions. So, so Ford Partners are an early stage venture capital firm. So we focus on in the UK on pre-seed and seed stage investments. And we do that in three sectors. So applied AI, marketplaces and e-commerce. There are two things which make us very different from all the other pre-seed and seed stage investors out there. 
First is that we run a team called the Studio Team, which is effectively an agency which we run on behalf of our portfolio companies to help them grow and succeed. And so the way that, that we encourage entrepreneurs to think about it, in fact, our, our most recent investment in a company called Cluster Market, the CS, I love working with Forward. I love, so uh, my partner, Luke Smith, is, is going to be his board director. Big, chart, big reason for choosing Forward was to get to work with Luke. But also the other big reason for choosing Forward was because I want to work with the studio team that's run by uh, Jessel Mehta, our COO. So in particular, what, what Johannes at Cluster Market wanted was to work with Jessel on his positioning uh, and product to accelerate the growth of his company. So I've, I've spent a long way. So we have ventures, we're supported by the studio team. And then last year, we launched Ford Advances, which is a revenue-based finance company. And that's making advances of between 10K and, and, and a million to also to high-growth startups. And as I said, like we're, we're on a mission to build the UK's leading and most admired venture firm. And what we love, we love helping founders. We say our purpose is to give founders their best shot at success. And so I believe something in the, in the minds of your listeners, there's two types of people we'd love to engage with. Firstly, entrepreneurs who might want to raise money either from our ventures team or from Ford Advances. Then please do get in touch and you can find how to do that from our website. And then finally, we're hiring, you know, like if, if everything I've been talking about here sounds attractive, sounds exciting, sounds like something you'd like to be part of, then please do get in touch. Like we need to, and we've got some significant hires. Post IPO, we need to beef up our finance function. So the probably the biggest hire is a CFO and we need an operations leader in advances, an intern uh, for our associate program and the in ventures, but lots of open hires. Excellent. Well, that's been a wonderful exposition, Nick, of how to IPO. Forward certainly seemed like a, a fantastic firm and seem more important than ever. I mean, uh, having been away for a few weeks on holiday, I looked at the newspapers today and it seems to be that the government's economic philosophy is driven by the idea that if you raise more taxes and the government spends more, this creates economic growth. However, uh, anybody involved in the world or business will realise that it's only the startups, the founders, people creating new things that actually creates wealth and creates new businesses. So given the last 18 months, I, I think uh, firms like yours are more important than ever. And I wish you every success in the future. Thank you. It's been a pleasure talking. Thanks for listening. If you're in need of a non-executive or advisory director with deep expertise, experience and contacts in the worlds of both traditional FS and fintech, or unique insight into how to make your board an engine of growth today, contact me at mike at mikeballiman.com. If you just need one-off advice in these areas via clarity.fm slash mikeballiman. We could sit in a vendor all day Watching the firelight dance Watching the firelight dance We could walk in the mountains before dawn Watching a happy moon ride Watching a happy moon ride
like the mountains and the trees Can you see what I mean? Can you see what I mean? We fade in between the earth and the sky Kiss the city goodbye Wave the city goodbye Wave the city goodbye Watch the firelight dance with me. 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 Watch the firelight.